0: Let me—I I already alluded to it, but let me just say one more quick thing about the daddy-daughter dance. Um, it was—it was phenomenal. Uh, we had a great time. We had, I don't know, nearly 170 that signed up, and, and I don't know how many of those came, but but most of them, to be sure. And so those of you, A, who really participated and helped to lead it, I just want to thank you, the volunteers. Um, it, was, it was beautiful, a great opportunity for us to be together and get to meet some guys and some of the daughters that we haven't met yet. And so I just want to thank you to those of you who worked on it and let those of you who know, who weren't here, who perhaps don't have a daughter uh, or four, that... Um, that it was really kind of a, it was a remarkable time. So thank you um, for that. And brothers and sisters, this morning we are beginning our look at the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, that comes to us, if you don't know, from, the thre- from three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so from now all the way up until the Sunday before Palm Sunday, uh, we are going to be uh, looking um, at this text. And so uh, we begin with what's oftentimes called the Beatitudes, which are the first 12 verses of the fifth chapter of Matthew. And so, again, I apologize to those on you on this side for whom this projector is not working today, but um, just listen and and you can hear uh, these words from the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit.'" Of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you this cold, windy morning, giving you praise for the ways that your spirit continues to be at work here. We pray, God, that in all humility that you would continue to work through us. That your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So on Wednesday, like most Wednesdays, we were talking about this particular passage at our staff meeting. And someone brought up the question of what exactly was happening right before the fifth chip chapter began. Why exactly was Jesus going up on the mountain? And, and why was he almost, it seems, kind of escaping from the crowds? And it's a good question. Oftentimes when we come to scripture passages, we, we can disembody them from the context in which they reside. And so the answer to that question is right before this, at the end of the fourth chapter, Jesus is beginning to get really, really popular. He's beginning to heal more and more, and so those that are sick are made well. Those who have diseases are being cured, and he's beginning to proclaim the coming kingdom of God. And we're told that more and more people are beginning to follow him. In fact, Matthew even begins to mention some of these towns from which people are coming. They're coming from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, from Galilee, and even from beyond the Jordan. Jesus is trending, as they would say today. And yet in what perhaps is the first glimpse that Jesus clearly did not have an agent or a publicist, he does not do what we would have expected him to do, which was to feed into that popularity. He he doesn't start asking himself, how can I gain an even larger hearing by going to larger cities and having more and more people follow me? Instead, he decides to kind of go off, to get away, if you will, not completely alone, but up on the mountain with his nearest disciples. There he begins to teach them. And one of the things that this does is is that, first of all, it gives us kind of a a glimpse early in Jesus' life that he's always going to do things differently than, than we probably would. He always tends to turn things up on its end. And secondly is the fact that Jesus, from the very beginning, was committed and realized that he needed to teach his disciples, to form his disciples, to form a different kind of community. See, that's really important for us to keep in mind as we begin to look at the Sermon on the Mount, is that that Jesus wanted to form a community that could clearly live out what it meant if you had experienced the love and the grace of Jesus. In other words, he's wanting to make sure that here is a community that could proclaim what it looks like if you truly understand the kingdom of God. He wanted them to be a community that would give the surrounding society and world a glimpse of what the kingdom of God would look like in the future. In other words, he wanted them to be able to look at this group of disciples that, of course, would beget other disciples to beget other disciples who would beget other disciples until you would get to a community much like this one right here at ZPC. He wanted the world to be able to look at them And be able to see what was coming in the future kingdom of God. And I'm not sure that we oftentimes look at ourselves quite like that. This past week was the consumer electronics uh, show in Las Vegas. Everyone kind of keeping up on that, right? It's a massive trade show. And, and one of the more popular parts of this is when they bring out kind of futuristic prototypes of what is coming. And this could be gadgets or cars. You could kind of see it. And people love that part. And the reason why they love it is because they want to know what's coming in the future. They want to see what they are going to have access to. They want to see... What What things are going to look like. And in a lot of ways, it seems to me, this is exactly what Jesus wanted this community to be like. A kind of prototype, if you will, of the future. Right? A prototype. So we we were at a trade show. People could look at ZPC and could say, oh, this is great. This is what the future is going to entail by the way that we worship God and loved God. By the way that we loved one another. By the way that we loved our neighbors, by those we didn't even know that well, by the way even that we love our enemies. See, we are supposed to be a future prototype of what this world will look like when God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in and guess where the lord's prayer is right in the middle of the sermon on the mount So the Beatitudes, then, are the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And oftentimes, when you read through those 12 verses, I should say, I'll put this on me. When I read through those 12 verses, I think, well, that's kind of nice, but I don't really care. I mean, it's interesting, but but what's even more interesting is, I almost said too much, what's even more interesting is the meat of it, right? The meat of the Sermon on the Mount and and all the things that it tells us to do. One of the things that we oftentimes fall prey to, I think, is that we tend to make the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, all those things like loving your neighbor, loving or excuse me, loving your enemy, like, like, like not being angry, like not judging, like watching how you pray. We, we, we tend to take those things out and think, okay, this is going to help me be a better person. It may help me be a better father. It may help me be a better worker or do better at my job. It may help me be a better Christian. And while all those things may be true and are hopefully true, We can't fail to see that what Jesus is doing is more than just that. This is not just how you can be the best version of you. But the Sermon on the Mount is how do we form a community that allows the world around it to see who they are called to be and what is coming in the future. And that is critical for us to see before we get too far into the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes kind of give us a 20,000-foot view of what this is and help us to get our minds in the right frame. Now, you may be saying to yourself, all right, Jerry, you may not realize this, but if the church is supposed to be kind of a glimpse of the future coming kingdom, I've got to be honest with you, it doesn't look very good. And you may even wonder, Jerry, do you realize what the church looks like? Because the church oftentimes does not look like that. And there would be many people who would look at the church and the things that the churches are battling and even kind of internal things going on within the church and say, we don't want any of that. And, of course, you would be right. I mean, nobody knows the underbelly of churches like pastors, right? And a part of that is because pastors know themselves, right? And while people may like to put pastors up on pedestals, the reality is, trust me, you don't want to do that, right? We are in many ways exactly like you, in most ways, in all ways, except for our particular calling. But secondly, of course, we see the ins and outs. When I was at seminary, especially my second and third year, I loved kind of seeing first-year seminaries come after they had done an internship at a church for the summer. And they'd gone into the church and they had all these noble thoughts about how they were going to help bring the kingdom of God and how they were going to be feeding the hungry right, and telling people the good news of Jesus and they were going to be a part of a group that wanted to do that. And they'd come back and they'd say all they did was they fought about whether they should have 166 spaces for the parking lot or 167 or, or we kept wanting to try to get them to reach out but all they cared about was themselves. And, and you could kind of see them with this deer like caught in the headlights kind of look and you could see kind of the depression that was setting in. And so it's important, of course, I want you to know, I realize that when I say that we are called, or I think that Jesus is saying that we're called to be kind of an embodiment of the kingdom of God, I want you to know that we do not always look like that, and I realize that. Which is why it's critical that we hear the very first beatitude. Because the very first beatitude that Jesus says is, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit. Now that's interesting because if you are going to form a community, if you are going to form a committee, whatever it is you are going to form, it is often, it is much more frequent that you say, We need to get a few strong folks to come in and be a part of this. It is pretty rare that you say, Who are some weak people that we can get to come be a part of this, right? But Jesus, he kind of calls us out at the very beginning and says, No, I don't want people who think that they are strong in spirit. Jesus understood, of course, that all of us are broken, that all of us are struggling with something. And the reality is, if he tried to work with people who thought they were strong in spirit, he knew that they would be spending way too much energy and time trying to pretend that they had it all figured out and that they were perfect and that they didn't need anything else and they would not have the time to actually be formed into the community that he needed them to be. So Jesus, from the very beginning, says the kind of people that I want are those people who are fully aware of their poverty in the Spirit. Who feel and understand how weak they are, how often they fail. Jesus, from the very beginning, says I am going to begin working with those who are in in weak positions and can be honest about it. They don't need to fake it. They don't need to act like they got all their questions answered. They can come and be real. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to work with. And it's also a mention of grace. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. From the very beginning of Jesus' work, he is talking about the fact that he wants to offer grace and blessings to those who are poor in their spirit. Which is critically important as we get to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the rest of the Sermon on the Mount has some really hard things for us to hear and even harder things for us to follow. And what's going to happen when we begin to try to follow those things, of course, is that we are going to fail. Fail we're going to fail. And in those moments, Dale Bruner says, in those moments in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he thinks that all of that drives you back to the very first beatitude. So what you have to remember throughout is the importance of driving back to that, that in those moments when we fail, we go back to that thought, oh, that's right. Thankfully, Jesus said, blessed am I because I am poor in spirit. And let me also suggest to you that in this surrounding world that is watching what we are doing, there is perhaps no better witness than to be a people who say, we don't have it all figured out, or we're not always right, but we are trying to follow after this God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So a question then is, what exactly does that look like? What does it look like for us to try to be about the kingdom of God right here at ZPC? And we'll go into details in this over the next few weeks as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. But again, on the Beatitudes, we get kind of a, an overview. And a couple of the things that Jesus says is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me remind you again of what that says. Not blessed are those who are righteous, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, a reminder, right, that Jesus knows how much we don't have this down, right? Not that you are righteous, but that you at least have a hunger and thirst for it. And what is righteousness? Righteousness is a word we throw out in the church, and most people probably have no idea what we're talking about, but it just sounds good that we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Whatever that righteousness is, it must be good. Righteousness, as clearly as I can say it and simply, is right relationship with God and right relationship with others. And so it means, of course, that as a church, we are concerned about those two things. How can we be in right relationship with God and display that to the world around us? And how can we be in a right relationship with others, with our neighbors, right? That's very simple. It's fleshed out a little bit, and blessed are the peacemakers, right? Now, if any of you know the story of the life of Brian, that movie, of course, I'm sure that some of you are thinking where it says blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, I think more at 1030 may know that. Blessed are the cheesemakers, right? Yeah, which is not what he's saying. Blessed are the peacemakers. And most of you know, of course, that this is kind of more than just not war, right? Oftentimes we think of peace, we just think of not war. And, And what this comes from, the idea of shalom, if you will, right? The idea of the wholeness of the world. In other words, uh, Dale Brenner says that this is like a circle, a, a perfectly round circle is what we should think of when it comes to being at peace, which means that there's no part of our world that is not in right position, that what we are striving for is to have a circle, right, where all of our relationships are in good standing and healthy ways, and that this is really what we also have to be concerned about. So what does that look like? Well, I was thinking about that this week, and on Thursday night, I was driving here. It was about 7.58, as I recall, uh, give or take one minute maybe, and I was driving here because at 8 o'clock, we always, we always, most of us men, most of us men, some of us play Basketball, right? I mentioned this about six weeks ago, trying to get some drum up some publicity. I got two more guys, so I'm still trying to drum it up even now. So, most of us come and we play basketball, right? Most of us, again, I just keep saying that so that people will actually come, right? So, at eight o'clock, so there I was, and I was right out here. I was driving right out here on Michigan. I was about, or on 116th, I was about to turn right into our parking lot, and this was lit up, and I looked in, and what I saw was I saw a band, right? And I knew that, that, that our band, our praise band, was in here practicing, right? And And so I went and I turned right into our parking lot. And as I kind of drove, you know, off there to the left was the Jeremiah house. And I I realized that there were a lot of cars in the parking lot. And I knew, wait a second, it's Thursday night, a lot of cars in the parking lot. That meant it must be about time for banquet. That's right, great banquet, right? The people are starting to get ready for great banquet, right? And so, which, by the way, sometimes hinders the amount of guys that can come to basketball. So we're going to have to kind of adjust that a little bit. Anyways. That's right. So they're here, starting to prepare for great banquets, right? That are coming in March, and and so I, okay. And so I I walked in, and the hallway. I went through the east door, and I looked in the hallway, and I remembered then that that in that same hallway, just a few hours before, that we had had that there are people there who were hungry, and they were coming to our food pantry, and I remembered that because I'd seen some workers at our food pantry earlier that day, and and then I went into the gym, right? And I started playing basketball, and I started heaving up some great threes, only one of which uh, went in the whole night, and, but it doesn't keep me. I was talking a lot of trash, as I always do, because, you know, you don't have to be good to talk trash. You just have to be good at talking trash, right, which is, which is what I love to do. And so, so it, was, it, was, it was great, right? And I was thinking about that. I was just thinking about that night as, as I've been thinking about this sermon. And I realized that in some small way, imperfectly though it may be, in some small way, this was a snapshot of exactly What Jesus is talking about when it says, blessed are those who are peacemakers. Blessed are those who are trying to think about this world in a more holistic way. Right? We have people who are here who are practicing worship because they're hopeful that in coming here and leading worship, that it will help us to reset our lives. Right? To begin to say, okay, what's at the head of our lives and how is my relationship with God? Right? Well, I passed by the Jeremiah house, which, of course, is our attempt to try to help people who are recovering from addictions, right? To be able to kind of make their life more whole again, to begin again, right? Afresh and anew. I look at all the folks who are, who are coming around for Great Banquet, and I'm reminded, of course, of my own experience of the fact that, that, that it's definitely about prioritizing our lives before God, but it's even more than that. right? It's, a, it's about trying to figure out how, how is my life at work and how is my life with my family. right? It's, it is definitely kind of shalom-based, if you will. What, what, how does God shape all of my life, not just one part of it? And, and, and to think about the food pantry, of course, people who are hungry, right? They are not whole. If you're hungry, you are not whole. If you are continually anxious about how you are going to eat or how you're going to feed your family. And so here in this food pantry, a, a way to try to do that, right? And even just playing basketball, right? Not only is it physically helpful for a lot of kind of out-of-shape middle-aged men like myself, but not only that, but, but, but as I look around, every time that we play, there's always one or two people there that I would not have met, had it not been for the fact that we were playing basketball. Always one or two guys, at least, if not more, who, who aren't, have, have anything to do with ZPC. And it reminded me that in that, I mean, I kind of felt blessed on that Thursday night. I'm not kidding you. Before I even thought about the sermon, as I just pulled into the parking lot, thinking about those things, I couldn't help but begin to feel blessed are the peacemakers. Or even just Saturday night, right? I realized last night, and I've got to bring this up. It's a late edition, but I've got to bring it up anyways. This daddy-daughter dance, right? I mean, I know that there are some who say, well, that's cute, and that's fun that they could do that. I want you to know that trying to figure out which of your three daughters who are there you're going to dance with without making the other ones cry is not fun. Okay? We didn't do it simply to be fun. I want you to know that a part of why we did it is because we wanted our daughters to know that they are important to us. Right? We did it so that they would know that they are special. Not because of how they look. Not because of how they dressed. Not because of what society tells them that they are. Or what even they, they themselves sometimes think that they are when they look in the mirror. But because they are children. Because they are our children. Because they are children of God. I want you to know that the reason why we do that is because we believe that it is a part of being peacemakers for God's kingdom, of giving a glimpse, we are giving them a glimpse of what the future looks like in the kingdom of God, of why they are valued, of why they are loved, of what this world is to look like. And we, in that night, were able to invite others who have nothing to do with ZPC to come and to experience that as well. We're not perfect at it. But it seems to me that we are hungering and thirsting for how we can do this more and more in this community. Now, I could end the sermon there, but because of the fact that so many of you came when you could have stayed at home, let me just give you a little bit extra. I know you're excited. The question is, one of the questions that comes out of this is, what do we do when the world around us doesn't seem to care? When they either don't notice what we're doing and how we're trying to display the future or, or when they do notice and they really don't like it. How do we, how do we respond in that way? Right, that's, a, that's an issue, it seems to me, that continually comes up and I've been kind of wrestling with it. And, and that, we see that in lots of different ways, right? I mean, even just, I can remember when I was in the Chicago area, and I and I was helping to resettle refugees for a year, and I was helping them to find jobs, and I can, you know, I may have shared some of this before, and uh, it felt like a holistic kind of thing to do. People were coming from war-torn at that point, Yugoslavia, and who were who were there, and I was trying to, you know, A, help them to find a job, be able to su- support themselves in a, in a peaceful place, and all those things, right, and, and you'd go, and you'd talk to an employer, and, you know, they'd give you some weird reason as to why they couldn't hire the refugee, but you knew it was actually for some other reason than what they were telling you or you try to get refugees to work together but they'd been at war before and they were just like forget it and and you would get it would get so exasperating and you would either get angry like I oftentimes did or you would just want to quit right? And and it happens in so much of the rest of our society, right? No matter what, all of you have instances of this, right? Maybe it's a society that that doesn't seem to care about the church or thinks that the church is just hypocritical, and it's easy for us to do one of two things, to either just say, well, forget it, and we don't care about being on display to the world around us if that's the way they're going to deal with us, or we just get angry. We got a lot of angry Christians, it seems to me. I think Jesus in this Beatitudes says a couple of things that I find striking. First of all, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, usually when we think about blessed are those who mourn, we just think, well, this is for people who are sad or who are upset, and certainly that may be the case. But, but perhaps even to look at this, I think, in a more biblical way is to remember some of the mournings that we hear in the Psalms when they are mourning How Israel seems to have turned away from God. And I think if you're wondering, like, what do we do when the world outside doesn't seem to care about us or when they're angry at us, what do we do? I don't think we quit, and I don't think we just get angry. I think we get sad. If you've ever been in an argument with somebody, let's say a spouse or something, right, and you're in the middle of that argument, and all of a sudden the other person starts crying, it changes the conversation on a dime. All of a sudden, it makes them real and accessible. And it seems to me that if if we really care about the world around us, if we really want them to catch a glimpse of what we think the future kingdom looks like, that the way that we begin that is not by simply throwing angry barbs and not by saying, well, just forget it. We don't care anymore. It is by simply allowing them to see that we are sad, that we are mourning that it seems like nobody may care about the future coming of God's kingdom. And secondly, where Jesus says, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Meek doesn't just mean timid. It doesn't just mean being passive. It doesn't mean that at all. It means simply being gentle because we realize that God is in control and that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven in his time. Right? That's the whole sense of inheritance. When you think about inheritance, you think of something long off. So Jesus is saying to his disciples who will undergo much more scrutiny, it seems, than most of us ever will when it comes to their faith. And he says, be gentle in the midst of that. Your time will come. God's time will come. You just keep being the kingdom right here that God desires you to be. Brothers and sisters in Christ, over these next several weeks, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I hope hope that some of these things that we talk about, I I do hope that they will help you. I hope that they will help you personally in your own life, in your own challenges and struggles, at work, at home, wherever. But I also hope that we begin to see that that's not all this is about. That it's really when Jesus was up on that mountaintop, he was thinking about the reality that he would be gone and that at some point this community would be here to be a glimpse of God's coming kingdom. We won't do it perfectly because we are poor in spirit. Amen? You guys are poorer than you realize, I think. We won't do it perfectly. And yet we must do it boldly nonetheless because we do believe that God has called us to be about righteousness and about being peacemakers and bringing shalom and wholeness to our world. So my hope and my prayer is that we will do so. That we will do it gently but that we would do it with great determination. That we would do it at times with tears in our eyes, but that we would do it with a passion that says we know that this is what God has called us to. And in the midst of that, I fully believe that we will feel more and more the blessing that it is to participate in the coming kingdom of God. May it be so. Amen. Amen.